So I have a serious topic to preach on about war and what does God's word say about it. Um, but last week, remember I preached a sermon about the outhouse. Don't cut corners when you go into the outhouse. And you remember that was about King Saul went into the cave to use it as an outhouse. David crept up and cut off a corner of his robe, then felt horribly convicted and said, oh, I should never cut off the corner of someone in the outhouse. I have never preached on the outhouse in 45 years. So I preached that sermon last week. We go to the Yek Farm. Great time in the Yek Farm. And the Yek Farm has a little shop. And Charlie and Ruth Ann bought this. A homemade outhouse. With a two-seater inside. That's... I'm, what a coincidence. The first sermon I've ever preached on an outhouse. Now, how many of you have ever seen an outhouse for sale? Like, yeah, none of us. I mean, I just find it an amazing, this is, I call this a, this is the Lord's sense of humor. Like, Joe, I thought that sermon on the outhouse was funny. And Ruth Ann and Charlie then bought this for me. So my wife says, I have to put it in one of my man cave rooms. I, I told Charlie, is Charlie here? Where's Don? I told him, I'm going to put this for the mice or the chickmunks outside. <laughs> no, I like it. I'm keeping this. Someone put a lot of work into this. I wonder, you know, oh. So it's made out of oak and it's nice. All right. Let's talk about war and what God's word says. We actually... Don't turn there yet. We're in 1 Samuel. I've actually been skipping the sections on 1 Samuel about war because I really didn't want to deal with it. It was like, but now with what's happening in the world, it's like God's like, oh, yeah, you thought you were going to skip those chapters. No, you're going to go back over them after all. I have to give you my bias. I believe the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. I believe Jesus, I believe every chapter in the Old Testament is about Jesus and the gospel. And the same Jesus of yesterday is of today and tomorrow. And it's the same God throughout the whole Bible. I say that because a lot of Christians say that God changed from the Old Testament and New Testament. In the Old Testament, he approved of war. In the New Testament, he doesn't approve of war. And I'm like, oh, no, I, I think it's the same Jesus. And God has not changed one bit. It's it's always been about the gospel. We're going to do questions and your thoughts at the end of the sermon. So hold them. History of violence in the world. So you don't have to turn here. We will turn to Genesis in a second. But it started with Adam and Eve had two boys, Cain and Abel. Abel offers up a blood sacrifice. Hebrew says it's a better sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that God taught Adam and Eve because of their sin and shame. God slew an animal without the shedding of blood. There's no forgiveness. And he clothed them in bloody skins. Abel offered up a better sacrifice. Cain offered up the sacrifice of his hands from the fields. God tells him he needs to offer the correct sacrifice. Cain gets mad and murders his brother Abel. And thus 25% of the world's population was killed. Many years goes by, a couple thousand years, and we come to Genesis chapter 6. So turn to Genesis 6. It's right before the flood. It's why God brings the flood. And it's just so sad. The earth over time has become more and more wicked. So Genesis chapter 6, 
starting in verse 5, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So I personally believe that God gives us a free will and that's why it's so pained God. He created us in his image. He gives us all a free will and we chose with that free will to just become wicked and violent and God is like, ah! It's so, this is so painful to see what people do to each other. I even kind of regret making. I was looking for people that would love me and follow after me, but I had to give them a free will because they didn't want to make robots. And look what they do. Look at the decisions they make. This is horrible. Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of what? Violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people and the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all the people for the earth is filled with violence. So, some sobering statistics on violence and war. This is, I had so much, but here's, here's one, and this is, the studies are always behind. But in the year 2017, worldwide this is, this is not just the United States, but worldwide, 464,000 people were murdered by someone, most of them by someone close to them. Doesn't that seem like a lot of people? In one year on our earth, 464,000 people were murdered. By the way, I had this since June 2020. Americans have been more supportive of increasing local police funding. The, for reducing local police funding declined from 25% to 15%. I think we're seeing in our country what happens if you reduce the police force, you have like a free-for-all. And so um, I'm, here's my, my financial advice for you. Buy Amazon. If, if we don't have enough police, there will be no stores left. So buy Amazon sock. Okay. So... Okay, I'm going to skip this. because How many wars have there been in the last 123 years on the earth? There's been 267 war, wars. How many people have died because of the wars in that 123 years? Oh, it's only 116,289,499 casualties from wars. And 90% of those casualties are civilians who got caught in the middle of the wars. So like this war with Israel and Palestine, you know there's all kinds of civilians in Israel. There's all kinds of civilians in Palestine. Ukraine and Russia, there's all kinds of civilians being killed in uh, the Ukraine. So in fact, most deaths are innocent bystanders, so to speak. So 1 Samuel 11. So let's look, we're in the book of 1 Samuel. So what a book to be in to go over war because it's actually covered. We're going to look at three sections. 1 Samuel 11 in the Old Testament. Now I have to show you something very unique about this chapter, this, this first verse. Now if you have an NIV, this and I don't know if other versions do this or not, 
But in the NIV, it starts with Nahash, and then there's a little A, a footnote. And if you look at the footnote, it's pretty big. It will say something about the Dead Sea Scrolls, and then it'll have this kind of fairly paragraph section. So let me explain something to you. Um, and, and this is very unusual. We found what's known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were written like 200, 300 BC, are many books of the Old Testament. One of the books in the Dead Sea Scrolls was 1 Samuel. But in this and almost the whole, all the books of the Old Testament in the Dead Sea Scroll match up very well with the Bibles we have today. However, in this one book, there was a couple of verses in the Dead Sea Scroll that's not in our Bibles. Now, we don't know which one is the most accurate, what we have, or the Dead Sea Scroll that's from 300 BC that has these additional verses in it. That's why in the NIV, they included at the bottom that they could be in the original 1 Samuel. Here's what it says. So this is the part that's in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Very old version of the Bible. Now Nahash, king of the Ammonites, oppressed the Gadites and Reubenites severely. He gouged out all their right eyes and struck terror and dread in Israel. Not a man remained among the Israelites beyond the Jordan whose right eye was not gouged out by Nahash, king of the Ammonites, except that 7,000 men fled from the Ammonites and entered Jabesh Gilead about a month later, and then it picks up with our verse 1. Everyone with me? Okay. So let's read. Now, picking up in verse 1, Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jebesh Gilead. That's where those 7,000 men fled to. And all the men of Jebesh said to him, make a treaty with us and we will be subject to you. But Nahash, the Ammonite, replied, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you. And so, and I couldn't tell if it was men or men and women. Okay, I couldn't tell. Um, so that you, I bring disgrace on all Israel. Verse 3, the elders of Jebesh said to him, give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. Now this plucking out or gouging out eyeballs, I never realized was something that has been practiced for thousands of years and in fact, maybe even practiced in the world today. So if you captured people from another nation or whatever, you don't want to spend all the money to take care of them in your prison forever. And so what they would do is just gouge out both of your eyes and then send you back. Then they never had to worry about you ever fighting again. And back in those days, once you blinded a guy, it was like living hell, right? So I'm going to share. Here's a, a true story. This is um, two nations were at war. After the battle of Clyde, Clydeon of 1014 A.D., the Byzantine Emperor Basil II had captured several thousand soldiers from the Bulgarian Empire. He put them into groups of 100 and blinded 99 in every group. The last soldiers he 
had only one eye gouged, out of these one-eyed men were ordered to lead their blind friends back to their commander. This earned Emperor Basil II the nickname of the Bulgar Slayer. According to some accounts of his story, Tsar Samuel of Bulgaria died from a heart attack upon seeing the returning blind soldiers. So everyone follow that? There's two, 3,000 soldiers. They were all blind in both eyes, except one out of every 99 one eye in order to guide them back to their homeland. And when the king saw them, just had a heart attack. You can imagine seeing that many men that were blinded, right? So, oh, oh, hold on here. Let's go back. So let's read on. So I lost my, okay. So verse four in 1 Samuel 11. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all, what did they all do? I want you to remember that. Anytime you go to war, you should be weeping. Anytime you hear some, something horrible happening, it should cause men and women to weep. Verse 5, just then Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen and asked, what is wrong with everyone? Why are they weeping? Then they repeated to him what the men of Jebesh had said. When Saul heard these words, what comes upon him? The Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he burned with anger. You can imagine how upset God is that someone would gulge, gulge, gouge, gouge out the eyeballs. He took a pair, verse 7, he took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming this is what will be done to um, the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. So Samuel the prophet, who this book is about, is saying this is horrible. Gather together. Then we read, then the terror of the Lord fell on the people. And they came out together as one. So not only does the Spirit of God come upon the leader, the president of Israel, the king, but the terror of God comes on all the people of, of Israel that they all join in to join the army. Verse 8, when Saul mustered them at Bezik, the men of Israel numbered 300,000, which is a very interesting number, by the way, and those of Judah, 30,000. And so, verse 11, the next day Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. So there is the Lord. And the Lord is like, this is horrible. This guy is going to keep taking out the eyeballs of people. He's expanding and growing. They're weeping. They're crying. And the terror of the Lord comes on the Israelites. You got to take care of this. You've got, you got to go to war. It kind of reminds me of I, when I think of Adolf Hitler killing people, killing innocent people, killing all the cripples, killing all the handicapped, killing the, the, the he put, you know, 10,000 ministers in Germany into prison. I mean, just somewhere, you know, you have to step in and stop. There's some, sometimes evil people will just keep going. 
So let's come to 1 Samuel 23. And I'm going to show you the importance of prayer. 1 Samuel 23, verse 1. When David was told, look, the Philistines, those are the bad guys, are fighting against Keilah and are looting the threshing floors. He inquired of the Lord. So he goes to the Lord in prayer. And he says, Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord answered him, I want you to go and attack the Philistines and save these people of this town of Keilah. But verse 3, but David's men said to him, are you crazy, David? Here in Judah, we are afraid. They're afraid of King Saul and his army. And now, how much more then if we go to Keilah against the Philistine forces? Wait a second, we're already outcasts. We're already running for our lives from King Saul. And you want to go help this city out against the Philistines? So, David, verse 4, what does he do? He once again goes before the Lord, inquires of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, go down to Keilah, for I'm going to give the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went to Keilah, fought the Philistines, and carried off their livestock. He inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Keilah. So, you'll note with me praying. Now, I was looking at history of the United States. And it, it's just amazing. It, it is not true in the present, but it has been true in the past with our country. When we would go to war against different nation situations, even the Civil War, do you know that the President of the United States would call our country, call upon the citizens of the United States and say, hey, this, there's something serious that's happening or we, we may have to go to war. And I'm calling on every American to fast and to pray and to seek God's wisdom and to seek wisdom for us as the leaders and for our military. I call upon all pastors to meet with the people in their churches and to call them to fast and to pray and to seek God's face so that we know what we should do and if we should get involved in this war and we, we should go forward. It is amazing. You cannot believe. You know, they're in the prayer. We, we can't win if we don't have God on our side. We know that the, we need to know if the Lord's leading us and guiding us. And, and so I... Every American should be on their knees praying for three days. I'm like, why? Wouldn't it be nice if the president of the United States said, we got wars. This thing could blow up. I call upon Americans to pray, to get on their knees, to seek God's... Uh, you know, we can't do that anymore, I guess. Too bad. Too bad. Because we should be weeping and crying about what's going on in the world. And we all should be called by the leader of our nation to pray and to seek his face and ask God for his blessing and wisdom and insight in whether we should go to war or not. 1 Samuel 30. Now this is, I know this, obviously this is like 4,000 years old. Believe it or not, back in those days the enemy would take hostages. Can you believe how awful and brutal they were back then? You know, we've come a long way, right? 
you know, we're sophisticated, we've grown, and we would never think of taking hostages, and oh, how primitive. But let me show you, let me show you some history. So David and his men left their wives and kids at Ziglag, and they're out fighting the Philistines. So we read, verse 1, David and his men reached Ziglag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had, raised, had raided the Negev and Ziglag. They had attacked Ziglag and burned it and had taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men reached Ziglag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men, what's the first thing you should do when you're thinking about war or what you see stuff going on like this? What's the first thing you should do when, when rockets are fired and innocent people are killed or people's necks are thrown or, or babies are shot? What, what's, what's the first thing you should do? Cry and weep. If you've got the heart of Jesus and if, you know, God weeps when, when God saw how wicked the earth was in the days of Noah, he's, he's like, ah, why did I make people? I gave them this free, ah, I, I'm sick. I, I, I'm, he's, he's devastated. God's got feelings. If you've got Jesus in you, you've got to be weeping and crying over this. Sometimes Christians act just so tough, like, ah, well, let's go in and kill these people and we'll kill this nation. And we'll, I'm like, what are you talking about? It should make you cry that people so hate each other and that this is where we're at in 2023 that we're, that we're dealing with dead bodies. You should be crying and weeping. So, verse 3, when David and men reached Ziglag, they found it destroyed by fire. Okay, verse 4, so David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured. And I don't know how to say this woman's name. Ah, Noam, Noam of Jezreel. And Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. I'll be preaching on her next week. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of what? Stoning him. The men were like, hey, David, we followed you. You were our leader. And, and we left our wives and children unguarded. And because we followed you, they got captured and taken as, we're, we're stoning you. We're killing you. See, that's a natural, because it says they were bitter. It says, each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. You know, over in Israel, I noticed there, this, there's talk of stoning. They're saying to the leaders, why didn't your intelligence tell you that Hamas was preparing to attack? You should have known. You need to be fired. You need to be held responsible that your intelligence, secret agents, whatever, that you didn't know this was going to happen. Shame on you. It reminds me, by the way, in 1980, an incident I went through when I graduated college. The Iranians had kidnapped 52 Americans. And Jimmy Carter, Christian, was president at the time. And so he decided, I'm, I'm going to go in. Well, I, I am sure it wasn't just him. I am sure he sought guidance. What's the first thing you do when, when Americans are captured and hostages? Weep. And then what's the second thing you do? Pray. I'm sure Jimmy Carter prayed. And um, so this was new. We had, we're always ill-prepared. 
So if you read this, you'll find out that the United States had never done this kind of stuff before, and the military was like, well, we've, we've never practiced. Okay, let's try to put 11 helicopters and some men that will get special training, but they never were trained in hostage rescue like this. And, and so as you know, they hel- the 11 helicopters go over to the Middle East, the sand, the helicopters didn't deal with sand, and it took out two or three of them. Some of them crashed into each other. Some men were killed, and it was the military that then came to the president and said, we can't do it. We, we're ill-prepared. We're losing our equipment. We, we cannot do the rescue. We can't go in. And so the military is the one that told the president, we're, we're out. And, so, and the president, as any good leader does, takes the hit himself and says, I've made the decision as the leader of the country that we aren't going to go in. And he got stoned, right? We voted him out. We fired him. And he knows he lost that election because he took the hit. Now, for me, I don't know what I would have done. I would have been sending 50 helicopters next time. Let's, let's go back again. But let's take 50 helicopters. But again, I don't know the condition of the military at that time and, and situation. And I'm sure that probably was discussed. So what do Christian theologians wrestle with? So there's three types of categories when Christians think about war. And the Bible has verses that seem to directly or indirectly discuss these. Oh, wait, just so you know. So David and his men are crying. I guess I should finish here. Chapter 30, verse 7. Then David, so after you cry and weep, what do you do next? Pray, right? Verse 7, then David said to Abathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. Abathar brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? And the Lord says, pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. And they do. But once again, they cry and they pray. I would hope that the leader of Israel, I would hope the leader of the United States, we should pray. We should decide. Because when you take hostages, uh, that changes the story. If you took my wife and kids, mm, it changes the story, okay? So there's three different types of wars thinking with Christians. There's verses that support these three. The first type is our Christians who believe in pacifism and or non-resistance. So last week's sermon, which I would say is talking about do not take revenge on a personal level, these Christians would take to a societal level, that you should follow this as a society, not to take revenge, not to defend, not to... um, And there are many Christians through hundreds of years that have... Follow this. Anabaptists, Mennonite, Amish, Brethren, Apostolic Christian, Holiness, Pacifist, Quakers, Moravian Church. They would say that's what Jesus did. He did not fight. The early Christians did not fight the Jews or the Romans when they were being put to death. They trusted the Lord. They didn't hold on to their lives. And this is what I practice. Now, usually under this, the non-resistant don't resist an evil person. A lot of times it comes up about self-defense. And again, they would, this is, this is usually the Christians that, to me, 
say the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. But here's one verse on self-defense. Um, and again, this, I think this is from the Lord. It's Exodus 22, 2 to 3. If a thief is caught breaking in at night and is struck a fatal blow. Now, today he'd probably be shot, okay? But back in those days, they didn't have guns, so they would probably use a baseball bat, okay? Um, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. But if it happens after sunrise, so if it happens during the day and you say, hey, that was my neighbor and he's dead here in my house, they'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa wait a second. We, we think maybe you had an argument with your neighbor and you killed him. But if it's at nighttime, this is why, by the way, I will not visit any of you after midnight, okay? <laughs> my limit is midnight. I don't show up. I'm worried I'll be shot through the door. I, I was sharing that uh, you never know what you're going to do <laughs> when you have a break-in. So Robin and I were married five years. We're upstairs. I'm sleeping away in my bed nicely. And Robin goes, dear, dear, someone's downstairs. Someone's broke into our house. So I kind of like, and then I heard like a noise. I was like, I got kids, wife upstairs. So I go down, I creep down the steps. I go through the kitchen, around the corner into the dining room. It's dark, there's no lights on. And when I go in the dining room, I see a tall guy standing in the dark right there with, within about two feet in front of me. Now, what happens, what do they call it? What are the things that happen when you face something terrifying? What's, what do you usually do? Fight or flight or pass out. How about, how about that one for a third alternative? I, I am not kidding you when I tell you that I did not have time to analyze it. I did not think to myself, wait a second, does he have a gun or a knife? Or I went into that guy with everything I had. I was punching, screaming, and that guy went flying across the room. So I turn on the light, and we still to this day have that coat rack that I... My hat was on top of the coat rack, and my raincoat was coming down the coat rack, and I'm telling you, it looked just like a guy. And, and my knuckles were sore for months. And fortunately, this is before cell phones, so that my wife wasn't calling 911. But you can hear her screaming upstairs. So, this is just a warning don't break into my house after three o'clock. That's why you need a dog. <laughs> we had a killer cat. All right. So here's the second theory on war. And I, this is kind of where I lean, that you can have a just war. A just war is morally justifiable through a series of criteria, all of which must be met for a war to be considered just and right to engage in. And Augustine is the one that kind of fleshed this out the most. He was a theologian of the fourth century. There are two categories under just war. The right to go to war. Okay, so is it right? Is whoever we're fighting, are they committing horrible crimes, doing, you know, 
terrible things and, and we need to go to save people, stop this you know, evil from advancing. And then the second one, which is, uh, this is the toughest one for a Christian nation, especially the United States, is not only can it, does it have to be a just war, but we have to fight it in the right conduct in war. So that's, this is what makes it difficult for a Christian nation. So let's say you have a school and you have three terrorists. There's 100 kids in that school and there are three terrorists in that school. Many other nations and other religions were going to have no problem blowing up that school to get those three terrorists. But in the United States, because we're Christian and we, we are trying to fight in a just war, that would be very difficult for us to do. Now, I realize sometimes accidentally we will kill, you know, innocent people when we're fighting some kind of terrorist or war or whatever. But generally, the, the U.S. would be like, no, no, you got to figure out some other way to get those two or three terrorists. You know, we're not going to blow up the whole school to get those guys. You, you know, figure out some other system. It, it just wouldn't be right. And it, so it, it makes it, I think, a lot more difficult for America because we're always, okay, is this a Christian thing? Is this a right war? Are we fighting it in a right way? The whole world is watching us, though they don't follow the same rules we follow. <laughs> Questions that are asked is such as having a just cause, being a last resort, being declared by a proper authority, the government possessing right intention, having a reasonable chance of success, and the end being proportional to the means used. And then the third type of war is called preventative war. So this is very complex, and this is like this is mind-boggling for Christian ethicists. Eth is that ethical Christians? A preventative war is an armed conflict initiated in the belief that military conflict, while not imminent, is inevitable, and that to delay would involve greater risk. The party which is being attacked has a latent threat capability, or it has shown that it intends to attack in the future based on its past actions and posturing. Wikipedia. Does everyone follow that? So this is like, okay, there's a nation. They're, they're, they, they operate under a different philosophy. They're developing nuclear weapons, and we know they might use them once they get them. And so we... Do a preventative war. Some would say that First Samuel 11. The war hadn't started. The men were in the town. And he says, hey, if you let us gouge out your eyes, you know. So the, a war, a, a literal war hadn't started. But King Saul gathers all of Israel, the 330,000 soldiers. And I would call it a preventative war. Goes in and wipes them out before the war actually would start or happen. Now, this is tough. This is a, like, ugh, this is a, you know, this is why they pay people big bucks somewhere up above. About the teaching in the New Testament. You know, there's so much stuff in the New Testament about soldiers. It's incredible. Luke, here's just some examples. This is John the Baptist. He's preaching. He's telling people to repent, to get right with God. Jesus said John the Baptist was the greatest prophet there ever was, totally in connection with the Lord. The people say to John the Baptist, what should we do then? The crowd asked. John, this John the Baptist, John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even the tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? Now listen, 
If, if God didn't like soldiers, if God didn't like war, wow, here is the number one prophet of all time next to Jesus Christ. I think this would be a great time for God to say through John the Baptist, you guys shouldn't be soldiers. You should get out right now and you should become farmers and, and preach the gospel. But that's not what John the Baptist says. He says, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. It's like, God's like, I, I don't we need soldiers. We need police. There's a lot of evil out there in the world. Jesus meets, and he probably is Roman, a centurion who's a soldier over 100 soldiers. He's, he's a leader over 100 soldiers. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, and again, it's probably a Roman, came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, you know what? I've never seen anyone in all of Israel that has the faith of this soldier. Wow, what a compliment. This guy's got better faith than all of you people of God, you know, the Israelites. You know, the first person, the first family to be saved that are Gentiles in the book of Acts and you can read this. This is Peter is told to go to Gentiles. The church had not been going to Gentiles at all and to witness. And the first family to be saved is a soldier, Cornelius and his family. I just find it interesting. And they get filled with the Holy Spirit. They get baptized. And nowhere does that, is that centurion ever told, you no longer are a soldier. You've now been filled with the Holy Spirit and baptized. And, you, you, you know. and I could sh go on and on. Like the Lord. Well, let's come to Romans. Romans 13. So this is instructions about citizens and, and what the soldiers, the police, the authority. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right. But whoops. What happened there? For rulers hold no terror for those who do right. But for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you'll be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, you should be afraid. For rulers do not bear what? The sword for no reason. You know, the police don't bear a gun for no reason. And the soldiers don't bear, you know, their weapons for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Well, that doesn't seem like pacifism to me. You know, God has ordained the authorities, police and military to, in a sense, bring a restraining effect. If you, listen to, to me. If we had no police and you just let people do whatever they want in the United States, what do you think would happen? I, I cannot even imagine. Well, let me close with this. I know right now, Jesus, you know, he's full of grace and mercy. But you do understand that at the, in the end of Revelation, Jesus Christ is going to come back to make war against the people on the earth. 
We are joining him. We are riding on white horses, the, the church, the angels, and we make up this army that comes back to fight the Antichrist and all the people of the world that have chosen to side with Satan and to fight against God. So this same Jesus that you go, oh, he's peaceful, loving, he would never hurt a fly. Uh, that's not true. That's not true. There's going to be, a, looking, well, there's going to be a lot of weeping. All right, let's, let's close. Father, um, we come here and we do, when we see what happened in Israel, Actually, Lord, I weep when I think of the, the Hamas that came in and what they did to children, to babies, to moms, to men, women. I weep, though, when I see all the bombs being dropped on Palestine. And I'm sure not all of them are Hamas. You know, that there's a lot of innocent women, children. I weep when I think of Ukraine. And the 45 other wars going on. How awful we are, Lord. What sinners. Thank you, Jesus, for that once we were people that hated and, and then we found Jesus Christ and the God of love moved into our hearts. And so it just pains us. I know one of the great things about heaven is that it says there'll be no more war or death, or sin, or grieving. So this, this earth is winding down. But Lord, I, I don't know. I know there's lots of verses. There's lots of prophecy about the end times and how the nations will come against Israel and Russia and Persia, Iran, will head it up to attack Israel. And I don't know if we're... Months away from the coming of the Lord or whether we're 20 years away. But it, it just seems to be building and building. We pray for peace to men and women's hearts. We pray for the Christians that live in Israel, the Christians that live in Palestine, the Christians that live in Russia, the Christians that live in Ukraine. And we pray that they would be crying out to you and asking for you to intervene. And even more importantly, that they be in the war fighting for the souls of men and women to come to Jesus Christ, that they'd be sharing the gospel in the midst of this horrendous war. Father, your Bible says we're not fighting flesh and blood. Behind all of this is Satan's, Satan is a God of hatred. And he's a God that relishes, he's the father of murder. He relishes and is empowered when men kill men when you know innocent people are put to death it just he relishes and rejoices we pray he would be bound that you would um, move with the, all the nations that are involved may your spirit it's your spirit that is holding back the day of evil according to second thessalonians we pray for the leadership in the United States. Um, we pray for our president, the military, to, to have wisdom. How much to be involved, how much not to be. I, it's, a, 
It's got to be a complex situation. So we ask, Lord, as believers, we pray, we are, are humbled, and we seek your face. Bless us as we go. In your name we pray. Amen.